Well, low church, if you would open to John chapter 20. John 20. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 10. We're going to pick up where we left off, so we'll be in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 18. This is God's Word. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at His head, one at His feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What a moment, Lord. What a moment. The first eyes to see the resurrected Son of God. And Lord, as we study this, we pray that a fresh reality would land upon us. We pray we would believe these things as historical realities. And that you would take those historical realities and miraculously, somehow miraculously, press them into our own hearts and minds and lives so that we are changed by these things. We pray that we would see Christ for who He is and we would worship Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It has been said that the four Gospels are passion narratives with resurrection accounts. And uh, if that is true, then we have spent a lot of time in the Passion narratives. uh, And just last week, we began the resurrection accounts. And I argued last week uh, a twofold argument. The first layer to that was that the first disciples, uh, as they entered the empty tomb, it was not conclusive proof that is the empty tomb alone, was not conclusive proof that Jesus had resurrected. Because uh, they needed, as the text implied, to understand the Old Testament Scriptures, which had predicted over and over and over for hundreds of years, He must rise. And had they have known that and believed that, the empty tomb would have been enough. Um, But because they did not understand the Scriptures, uh, it was not. And I quoted uh, Gerhannes Voss, who who said the first disciples gained no comfort uh, regarding thoughts about the resurrection. They did not anticipate the resurrection uh, to come. 
And uh, all of that changes here. Verse 11 uh, through 18, every bit of that uh, drastically changes. But before we get into that, I want to say something that I think is very important for us to understand uh, when it comes to studying the Gospel of John. Um, chapters 20 and 21, which we, we're about to get into, and um, we're going to see four one-on-one encounters with Jesus, an individual with Jesus, four of these that John highlights. He's the only Gospel author that highlights these resurrection accounts. Um, we see, we'll see him, Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Thomas, Jesus and Peter, and Jesus and John. And John, the author John, loves to just zoom into these one-on-one encounters with Christ. And that's significant for a few reasons. Um, but one of the large ones is that people don't get saved by Jesus in large crowds all together collectively. Families don't just decide, we're all Christians now. And then they're just miraculously all Christians. Um, Nations don't become Christian nations politically, culturally, religiously, um, just declaring themselves or or taking on certain Christian ideals. Um, Each individual uh, must have their own personal story of their own eyes being opened to Christ, their own heart being opened to Christ, their own sins being forgiven by Christ. Uh, Nobody is a Christian without their own personal testimony. Many uh, won't have a testimony. Many of us here won't have a testimony like the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, Many won't even know their testimony in terms of, I was saved at this moment on this date. Um, They won't remember those things. But everyone has a testimony who truly knows Christ because we know from Scripture we are born into Adam. And in order to be born, we must be born again into Christ in order to be Christian in the full sense. Uh, Romans 10 reminds us of this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Then it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So Christ saves individuals as individuals receive by faith Jesus' Gospel Word. That's how we enter in. And I want to just give a a side note here that I think is important um, to acknowledge with where I want to go in this passage. Um, There's a lot of pushback right now, and I think for good reason, against an over-individualized type of Christianity. Um, I actually agree with with many of those who have concerns about this. I think America has over-individualized Christianity, Um, taking uh, this large eschatological gospel of the kingdom and and truncated it down to just me and my own personal relationship with Jesus. I think that's a problem. I think that is not consistent with the Bible or with the New Testament. I don't think it's helpful to say to kids or adults, all that matters is just you and your relationship with the Lord. I, I, I don't think that holds up to Scripture. Um, I've actually had people tell me 
Um, you can't tell someone to leave this particular sin or to stop doing this particular thing because that's their relationship with Jesus. And if they have a relationship with Jesus and it's their own relationship with Jesus, who are you to tell them how to have that relationship with Jesus or not? And there are many uh, millions, I dare say, who have similar views because of uh, over-individualized type of Christianity. Um, I don't think this is consistent with uh, the nature of the local church or Christian discipleship. Now, I, I say all of that to say uh, this. Individualism is not a byproduct of the Enlightenment or postmodern relativistic philosophies. Uh, individualism isn't a result of careless Arminian pragmatism. Individualism in its pure biblical form comes from individual personal encounters with Christ like the one we see right here with Mary. And the one with Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. And John 4 with the woman at the well and Jesus. And John 4 with the official whose son was dying and Jesus is personally interacting with him. And John 5 with the crippled man and Jesus. And John 8 with the woman caught in adultery and Jesus. And my favorite, John 1, Jesus with Philip and Nathaniel. Let me just remind us of this one. Uh, verse 44, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip found Nathanael and evangelized his friend, Nathanael. And, said, and Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And no other Gospel writer fills the pages of his Gospel narrative with so many individual interactions with one individual in Jesus as the Gospel of John. And it, and, and it just, it's, it's truly amazing to see that Jesus would take the time to meet one-on-one -on -one with an individual in His three-year ministry. He, he didn't see that as a, as a waste of His precious three years, all that He had to accomplish. He was a good biblical counselor. He would give hours to an individual. Uh, it's, it's truly uh, amazing. Twelve different individuals, at least that John highlights. We know there were many more. Um, and, and that's a glorious thing to notice. Now Matthew 22 explains how this works practically, or, or we could say theologically, when Jesus made this statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus would walk into a, a large crowd, or preaching to a large crowd, of many, and then within that many, he would call out an individual. So we would hear things like this. These are all quotes from Jesus. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So anyone, 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 21 times he uses that word to a group, and then 
promises that anyone of that group that will step forward and believe Him, receive Him, obey that promise, will live, will never die. If anyone keeps my word, he will never die. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If anyone serves me, he, will follow, he must follow me. If anyone loves me, he must keep my word. And even the warnings, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown into the fire and burned. Uh, there's another way that Jesus says this, another word he uses, it's the word whoever. And that word he is highlighted 32 times in the Gospel of John. So listen to how personal this is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, that is whatever individual in the world that might believe in Him, should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does what is true comes into the light. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Whoever drinks of the water that I give uh, him will never thirst again. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. So he'd walk again into a big group or to a big group and say, whoever among you believes or receives you will have life. The one who avails themselves of this promise that I'm laying before you. And that's because Jesus could talk like this because he believed in a doctrine that we call unconditional election. Uh, John 6.47 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I think this is one of the reasons why Christianity is so unique among other religions of the world. Uh, other religions have a very generic, impersonal deity, uh, not relational, uh, because their gods aren't God or alive. Christianity has a living God, and so it makes sense that it would be personal and relational and how we relate to Him, and how He speaks to us. Uh, that He would come and incarnate Himself in the body of a human like us, so that we could know Him. So that we could relate to Him. So that we could be saved from our sins and raised with Him. I mean, look, Jesus is appearing to Mary Magdalene. And I think what's interesting here is, why is it her? I want us to think about that. Why, why Mary Magdalene? Why not Nicodemus? Uh, why not Joseph of Arimathea? Two, two uh, men who are very prominent in Jewish circles that would have built some credibility. People would have appeared to them. They were the last ones with the body of Jesus. But He appears to Mary. And why would He appear to Mary as the first eyewitness. This is interesting. And I've brought this up many times to us. I think it's worth bringing it up again. Um, why would he appear to Mary? Well, he has his reasons and we can understand some of those. But I think what's interesting is that she's a woman. And that is a very important theological point regarding any type of biblical gender studies to recognize it's a woman who's the first eyewitness. Especially in this day and age when women were not credible witnesses in a court of law. If you were going to fabricate resurrection accounts 
you would not include a woman or women as the first eyewitnesses. That's not how you would construct this type of fabricated lie. Uh, You would make the first eyewitnesses someone like a Nicodemus or like a Joseph of Arimathea, not Mary. And Mary, uh, I should remind us, isn't just any woman. Luke 8 tells us she was possessed by seven demons previously. This is not just any woman. Uh, This is a a woman with a a very rough past. We don't know much about her. Uh, We know she's from Magdala. Uh, By the way, her last name isn't Magdala. Uh, That is where she's from. She is Mary uh, from Magdala or Magdalene. And it's, it's just, in, I mean, out of all the people that Jesus could have appeared to first, he chose her. He chose her. And I think the only reason that is, uh, that John tells us that, is because that's what really happened. That's what really happened. And that's the first person to see Jesus on Sunday morning. And Jesus just keeps appearing to these women, and they're not the godliest women that he could have found. He, he finds uh, a woman caught in adultery in John 8. He finds a woman at the well who's uh, been through four marriages and now living with this fifth man. And he calls these women out of sin. You know, God is and has always, God has always been and He is and will always be the great liberator of women. Uh, Hagar was mistreated by her husband. Abigail was in a terrible marriage. Tamar. It's interesting, in Matthew uh, chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, a lot of, it doesn't just show the male line. It shows a lot of women in the line of Christ. And it mentions uh, Tamar. Tamar was a pro- who prostituted herself with Judah. Uh, Rahab, the prostitute, is saved in the Old Testament. Ruth, an idol worshiper who was a Moabite. Bathsheba who brought forth Solomon and the Messianic line, but committed adultery with David. These are significant women in the line of Christ that are highlighted. Jesus Himself entered the earth via a woman. Uh, Christianity is absolutely unique among all the religions of the world that either mistreat women or ignore them. And Christianity alone exalts women as co-equals with man, born equally in the image of God, as men are. Uh, Galatians 3.25 says, In Christ there is neither male nor female. And so in a world where women are suppressed, the Bible exalts women more than any other belief system in the world ever has. Uh, Christianity is the only legitimate women's liberation movement. And this passage should end all arguments that God has done anything other than honor women. So let's look at verse 11. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at his head and one at his feet. Now, I'm not going to get into angelology here and, and say a lot about angels, but it is interesting that they're not chubby with wings, little miniature baby uh, babies, and they're not terrifying, which many times in Scripture, people were terrified by the presence of angels. These uh, were neither of those in their appearance. Verse 13, 
They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And here's the first thing I want us to notice. Notice the chaos happening outside of the tomb compared to the calm happening inside of the tomb. I think this is the evidence that Jesus had been in that tomb. Even His presence created a type of calm. You know, uh, when He was in the boat and everybody's going crazy, we're going to die, you know, and the waves are... And then Jesus is sleeping. And then His voice calmed the seas. Uh, everyone is all going, going crazy saying, oh, Lazarus is dead, he's dead. And, and Jesus intentionally waits longer and then shows up and tells Lazarus to rise. One of the striking things to notice is the calm coming from outside the tomb or inside the tomb compared to the chaos and unrest and anxiety and fear from outside the tomb. Outside the tomb, the disciples are all running around frantically wondering who stole the body. Uh, the guards are panicked with fear. The council is uh, fearfully and anxiously trying to politically maneuver things uh, to cover this up and to create some sort of alibi for what's going on. Uh, but inside the tomb, there's a peace that emanates from Christ who is in absolute control. He was in control of Lazarus. He was in control of the waves of the sea. He's in control of his own resurrection. And, it, and he's peaceful, not because he doesn't care, but because he's in control. And that calm, that peace, uh, brings an emotional byproduct of the environment that once possessed Christ. The emotional stability is what emanates from the resurrected Christ. And you see it even in the angels. There's this emotional stability found in them because they had been near the body of Christ and were now standing in the tomb. And, and here's something else worth noticing. Mary is very concerned. She's weeping, it says. Because the body's not there. They are not weeping or concerned at all because the body is not there. She should have been weeping if she would have found the body there because it would have meant she was still in her sins. But she's not understanding what's going on and, and in her confusion, verse 14 says, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Which is how many people first encounter Christ. They don't yet know it's Him when they first encounter Him. Uh, many of us spent how many years of our lives hearing about Jesus, learning about Jesus, hearing, singing, all of this Jesus that's before us, and we didn't see, and we didn't know, and we didn't recognize who He was yet. 2 Corinthians 5 16 says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard Him thus no longer. And so he looks at Mary who does not recognize Him and says, why are you weeping? 
And whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Many are like Mary. And they can't deal with a a Jesus that they can't comprehend. They suppose Him to be a gardener. They suppose Him to be something other than what He is. Many like Mary are unable to see beyond their own preconceived ideas of how everything must be. She did not recognize Him. And for 18 years of my life, I was unable to see Christ. And He was right before me. And I couldn't see Him. And His words were before me. And I couldn't hear them. He was there the whole time. Until that night, uh, in my car, I met Christ. And I heard Him. And I saw Him. And I've walked with Him ever since. Today He says to you, what are you searching for? Who are you seeking? And all this world, what are you seeking? And, I, and I'm, I'm even speaking to believers here, brother, brother or sister, um, those of you who love the Lord, like Mary loved the Lord, what are you seeking? Have you lost your first love? Have you begun to drift away from Christ and begin to seek things other than Him? I mean, is there anything in this world worth seeking? I mean, really seeking? Other than Christ? Is there anything down here? that's worth the amount of time, the amount of heartache that we often give. She, she doesn't go out seeking Christ to get her bills paid. She doesn't go out seeking Christ to land the right job or find the right spouse. She doesn't go seeking Christ to get her emotional life back in order or to avoid suffering. It's not why she's seeking Jesus. Why is she seeking Jesus? And this is very profound and I want us to think about what I'm about to say here because I think only those who have who actually have found Jesus will understand uh, what I'm going to say here. She's seeking Jesus because that's what faith does. That's what genuine faith does. The essence of real faith in Jesus seeks Jesus. Not just in the bad times, but at all times. And in all circumstances, we see cause to seek Him. And because Mary finds Jesus in the place of His death and enters into that place of His death, she was able to experience Christ's life. And so this is the the gospel principle that we need to draw out of this. Uh, You can't find Christ in life until you've found Him in His death. That's the path of all true discipleship according to Christ. Matthew 10, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we're watching Mary lose her life. And at the same time she's losing her life, she's finding her life. She's finding a superior treasure than anything she could seek 
in the world. And a lot of people, they want the presence of Jesus. This is so popular in certain circles of Christianity. I just want to be in the presence of Christ. I just want to experience Christ. But they don't want to enter into His grave. And in this way, Mary is a type of the way every Christian must meet Christ. She has this inner impulse to meet Him in His death. And because she's willing to meet Him in His death, she finds Him in His life. Guys, look, she, she wasn't looking for life. She wasn't looking for life. She, she didn't find emotional stability and peace because she was looking for emotional stability and peace. She, she didn't find the resurrection because she went out looking for the resurrection. She was not looking for the resurrection. She was looking for Christ. And she found all of those things because she met him in his death. And I brought up Johannes Voss uh, earlier. I'll, I'll quote him again here. He says, Mary Magdalene had a deep need for Jesus Christ as Lord and nothing else in the world could satisfy her. She, she doesn't go to find Jesus saying, he might be able to give me eternal life. She goes to Jesus because he is eternal life. And she knew it. And she realized it in this moment. She comes to the tomb because she knew this man alone can deal with my sins and my past and all that I've encountered. And she loves Christ. Everybody else leaves the tomb except for her. She lingers. This is the man who cast out the demons that were in her. This is the man who she watched crucified hours earlier. This is the man that she watched put his body into the tomb. And now she wants to go anoint him and take advantage of this last moment to be near him. She just wants to be near him. And so she's weeping and mourning and longing and tearing. Um, I, early on, when me and Priscilla were engaged, uh, there was a point, and right before, or it was right before our engagement, uh, she was in Brazil, and uh, I knew she wasn't there. But I took the, I would take the long way uh, back to my house to drive by her apartment, um, knowing she wasn't there, but just knowing she was there at, at one point. Um, and you do weird things like that when you're in love. <laughs> um, Mary's at the tomb of a dead man. You know it. Why? Well, she loves him. She loves Christ. She wanted to be near him. She's like the Shulamite woman in the Song of Solomon. I have found the one whom my soul loves. She says to, uh, to the angels, they have taken away my Lord. My Lord. Hear, hear the affection in that? Charles Spurgeon was actually counseling a woman in his church once and she was dealing with uh, just lack of assurance of her salvation and, and trying, just questioning uh, these matters of her soul. And Spurgeon wrote down on a piece of paper uh, something along the lines of uh, sign this if you deny that Jesus is your Lord. And he said, I'll give you a hundred pounds if you will sign your name to this. Jesus Christ is not my Lord. And she said, I would never, for all the money, 
in the world sign that. Do you know anything of that? That you would do nothing could make you deny Christ as Lord. He's your Lord. Many of the Puritans speak of the deepest pain of the soul being the pain of missing Christ. She's feeling that pain. She's like Hagar, who in the Old Testament, she's right by the well of water, thinking she's dying of thirst, but doesn't realize it's right over there. She's longing for Christ, not knowing He's there. She just doesn't see it yet. And, And this passage is just screaming, we need a faith greater than a mere acquaintance with the risen Christ. This is an encounter between two seekers. Mary is seeking Christ, and Christ is seeking Mary. She lingered at the tomb hoping to find Him dead. He lingered at the tomb waiting to show Himself alive. She lingered out of love for Him. He lingered out of love for her. And look, here's something I know, and many of you know. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. You will find Him. We have promises, in fact, that say if you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. She's illustrating Colossians 3 that says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. She's illustrating that reality. I mean, what is she supposed to do? Just go home and do what? Jesus is in the grave. Where else is she going to go? And verse 15 is just the highlight here. It says, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, don't you want to know how that sounded, how he said her name? Mary? And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, from a literary perspective, this is brilliant. Uh, what John is doing here. He's showing the earthly sorrows that Mary has when she thinks he's dead. And then she juxtaposes that with the heavenly joy once she knows he's alive. What he's showing us here is what biblical worship is. Many people say, what does it mean to really worship? This is it. This is the most, one of the most pure pictures of worship in the whole Bible. She is seeking Christ Seeing Christ now for who He is and giving Him glory, giving Him praise, giving Him devotion and affection, that's what biblical worship is. Seeking Christ, seeing Him for who He is and giving Him the praise, uh, do Him. How could she not? I mean, He's standing there before her and then He says her name. He says her name. And you know what? The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Does it not say that to us in John 10? Jesus said, the sheep hear His voice. He calls His own by name and leads them out. The sheep follow Him for they know His voice. 
A voice of a stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I mean, what, what could be greater than to have the risen Christ say your name? And then a passage like John 10 says, if you're His sheep, He has said your name, and you know His voice. It's glorious. How personal He is. I mean, Luke 24, Jesus shows up at one of the resurrection accounts. He's walking on the road with these two men who don't know He's risen yet. And then what do they say after He walks away? They said to one another, did our hearts not burn within us while He talked to us on the road and while He opened to us the Scriptures? What disciple of Christ has not experienced that have you, as you've opened the Scriptures, has your heart never burned? Have you never heard His voice? It's His Word. We have. And if you haven't, you don't know Him, or you've spent very, very little time in this Word. Because He does speak to us. And at times our heart burns because it's so real. And we know He is speaking and it's his voice. You know, I don't I never get amazed when I hear that Christians commit terrible sins. I don't ever get amazed at that. I'm like, I know Christians, I'm grieved, deeply grieved by it, but I'm not amazed. I'm not shocked by it. I am shocked when I hear that there could be a true disciple of Christ that does not want to hear God's words. That does not have desire to have God speak to them through the scriptures. That's unthinkable. We know His voice. We want to hear from Him. Let me end us in this last uh, portion here. There's something that we need to see in verse 11 and 12. Uh, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. What is she seeing here? I believe she's seeing a microcosm of the sanctuary in the tabernacle where the cherubim, uh, the cherubim stood over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's presence was most manifested in the Old Covenant. In Exodus, uh, God gave instructions on how to build the Holy of Holies and, and the, or the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and He gave a place called the Mercy Seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where His presence would most be manifested. And in the, over that Ark of the Covenant, there would be two cherubim on both sides. Gold cherubim. It says in Exodus 37, listen to this, at each end of the Mercy Seat, make two cherubim of gold, one at each end, two ends of, on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one and one at the other. And then listen to this. There I will meet with you. Between the two cherubim, I will speak to you and I will meet with you. And so now God, in this tomb, through these angels, 
is saying something else to us. He's, he's speaking to us. There is a new way. There is a new mercy seat. There is a new way of atonement. There is a new holy place. Unlike the old. The old uh, covenant, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Cherubim, or the Ark of the Covenant, uh, was, it, it was called actually a testimony. A testimony. It would testify something. But it was testifying something with golden angels that couldn't speak. But now in the new covenant, that holy place where he lay, there are two angels who can speak. And they are saying, his body is not here, he is risen. They are testifying to us, the curtain has been torn, the holy of holies, you can enter in through the blood of Christ. You can know the presence of God. You can know the living God. He is alive. And and what, what is the resurrection? It is the Father's stamp of approval upon the death of His Son. That's what the resurrection is. We aren't saved from our sins because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the stamp of approval upon the death of Christ that it was a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice. And the resurrection is proof that it was finished at the cross. Lastly, right here, verse 17, we'll end here. Um, Jesus knows His earthly work is finished, and so He says this to Mary. Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father, and to your Father, to My God, and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord that he had said these things to her. Now, Pastor Kent's going to come back next week and deal with that, but I want to just point this out as we move toward the table. Um, She doesn't proclaim, I've seen my Lord. She says, I've seen the Lord. She said, my Lord earlier. Now she's saying the Lord. That's significant. She doesn't proclaim to others an optional Lord. She doesn't embody the relativism of our day. Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord, but you know, for you, something else may work. No. She proclaims a Lord who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. One that is not optional. To her, Jesus is real. And she has found the real Jesus, who is both imminent and transcendent. And so I want us to remember this as we come to the table. The Christ that died is an imminent Lord. He's close, He's near, He's personal, and He is transcendent. He is resurrected, He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He can do for us all we need Him to do. Let's go to the table. Let's remember these things. Um, If you're new, uh, those who have professed their faith in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and done that through baptism, uh, please join us at the table. Uh, For any who will not be joining us, there is in the red uh, bulletin some meaningful prayers that you can pray during this time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You that He died and that He rose. And we know the Gospel includes both. 
a death and a resurrection. Both are necessary. Both have been accomplished. And so we rejoice in this salvation that we have in the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, help us as we go to the table to proclaim that, to believe that, and to rejoice in that together. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.